Part 2. Roll Tide. Chapter 12. The Plainsman. No big surprise, but I attended college at Auburn, enrolling two months shy of my 18th birthday. Daddy had said he would send me to college and gladly pay my way, but there was only one choice of school. It sure wasn't Bama, Ole Miss, or Tennessee, which he seemed to loathe almost as much as Bama. Enjoy your college education, as long as it's on the plains of East Alabama. I shrugged and said, sure, why not? Plenty of friends were going there, and we would learn the next chapter of life together. We figured out studying, which I had done very little of at Sugar Hill High School. Meals, laundry, shopping, spending money, trips home on the holidays, and changing sheets on my bed. At least once per quarter was the plan. Maybe more often. I'd have to see how the mood struck me. Some had figured out fraternities like Kappa Alpha or Lambda Chi and did something called pledged, which I guess meant pledged their loyalty and their finances. But that wasn't me. I just wasn't that sociable. Nor did I have much disposable income. I was doing good just to go to college. If I had any extra discretionary money to be used, and that a benevolent gift from Daddy or my grandmother who occasionally wrote to me and sent me a check, it probably wouldn't find its way into a fraternity's treasury. The fraternity brothers did have their own houses, which would have provided some kind of conveniences, a more residential feeling and built-in brotherhood. But I was a dormitory guy. That's what I could afford, and that's where I stayed. I couldn't have everything. My first dorm roommate, Chester, was from a small West Alabama town. There were two things about him that I remember. One is that he showed up with a fire in his belly for the Auburn Tigers. I thought of him as almost a miniature Uncle Moon Pie. And secondly, he had a girlfriend back home. That was a complicating factor in making the transition to a new life. He had to either go home on the weekends and see her, which he seemed to do quite often, or call her on the payphone from the dorm lobby. Both of those were pretty expensive propositions 20 years before the end of the 20th century for an unemployed college freshman. However, I soon went through roommate trauma. West Alabama girlfriend reportedly dumped him as he shared with me in tears one night, for reasons still not clear to me. Certainly had something to do with another guy, but he never felt he got the whole story. News of her departure seemed to set off a tiger in him, and he became something of a wild man, a rogue college student trying to leave his mark all over campus. It wasn't pretty to watch. Chester didn't finish his freshman year. Got a DUI and spent a night in the Lee County Jail. His daddy sent him home, and he got a job in the local hardware store while attending a nearby junior college. He sent me a letter and told me this, also asking for me to send some things left behind in the dorm room after his arrest. I obliged and spent the rest of the first semester of my freshman year without a roommate. It had been less than 20 years since Governor Wallace had stood in the doorway at the University of Alabama, pledging to keep it lily-white. I would have thought we would have moved on from there and realized that our racial prejudice was destructive and wrong. 
but I experienced it at Auburn, listening to friends tell jokes that were off-color and inappropriate. I watched them draw lines around social circles that didn't include blacks. And generally, with disdain, they looked down on blacks, and as they described certain harmful actions taken towards blacks and the attitudes behind those cruel acts, they would let it slip in conversation. That's how we did it back home. Black athletes, particularly football players, were somewhat admired and in small ways protected from the racism leaks, but the black student population was not treated with the equality and normalcy I expected. I was chagrined at this and tried to cultivate relationships with black friends. Paul Washington and Joe Bab Robinson had been two of my closest friends, and I had no reason not to expect that I would have friends at Auburn who were different from me. As I started my Auburn career, I was determined to attend every home football game, some on the road, depending on the availability of personal funds, and would maybe get to see Paul Washington on the Crimson Tide offensive unit at Legion Field during the annual Iron Bowl. My numerous and obvious points of athletic lack kept me from any fleeting dreams of being an Auburn Tiger. I would be an observer rather than a participant on fall afternoons. I'd made peace with this future path despite my starry-eyed childhood ambitions. Though I was aware that I couldn't cut it on the football field, I did have a gift for writing. Awareness of this led me to a choice of major, and I settled early on journalism. Daddy drilled into me and in fact commanded that I be practical in my decision. When he left me in front of my freshman dorm, he told me two things. Get to heaven and get a degree you can get a job with. He was right with his direction on both counts. I would continue to follow Jesus Christ, which I had done since I'd been a small child, nurtured in the faith at Sugar Hill Methodist, and I would major in something practical. That meant not majoring in philosophy or English or mathematics. Turning those study programs into a living wage would require some extra steps educationally, and I was not that interested in further education. I reasoned early on that a four years bachelor's degree was plenty. I chose journalism, and I would eventually write for the student newspaper, The Plainsman. As I launched my degree quest, I was able to negotiate the somewhat confusing quad structures at Auburn and find my way through the intimidating Haley Center, the main classroom building where I took most of my classes. I quickly realized how unprepared I was for college life. I mean, just buying textbooks was almost an overwhelming experience for a new student. While the staff at Auburn's legendary J&M bookstore softened the pain as much as they could and helped me to find what I needed, still, I had to pay for them. I had never done that before. At Sugar Hill High School, we got assigned textbooks for the semester, complete with doodles and love notes written in the margins from learned ones who'd gone before us. The sticker shock of textbook purchases was hard to digest and explain to my parents. I don't ever remember taking notes in high school classes. We wrote on handouts or worksheets or tests or just listened. During lectures at Auburn, people wrote as fast as the wind in spiral notebooks. 
wasn't exactly sure what they were writing down and also what they were missing from the lectures as their pen tried to stay in sync with the professor's distribution of wisdom. It was unsettling to me, especially as this note-taking seemed to be part of an expected skill set and one which I obviously didn't have. But I tried. For the most part, I failed. I learned to listen and try to digest the gist of what the prof was saying. We knew the teachers at Sugar Hill. We grew up with their children, played Little League baseball with them, and attended Sunday school, and maybe even went on vacation with their families. It was a small town, and we were either personally acquainted or at least knew of the teachers and had numerous points of connection with them. But Auburn was different. Professors came from various backgrounds and profiles and were all unknown to me. They might as well have been from some far-off place like New York City, for all I knew. Some were talkative and friendly and were able to boil down for us the great learning we were seeking. They could put the cookies on a low shelf for us, as one liked to say. But not all were like that. I had a grumpy freshman English professor. He acted like we were a bother when we asked basic questions, which he thought we should know the answers to, but for us, we had not been taught that particular information in high school. We couldn't change that reality. Another prof, this one who taught writing, used big words, and when we protested or asked her to explain, she would shrug, point to the dictionary, and say that college students should know that word. While that kind of response is one approach to pedagogy, It did keep us at arm's length, especially if the classroom was the only place where we saw her. We weren't exactly going on vacation with her family. She sent a strong signal from her responses that she was smarter than we were. We were no match for her mental prowess. We admitted it. We weren't. But I made it through all the basic classes, even the mathematics ones somehow, not with great grades, but they were passable. And I was advancing. My favorite professor was a Mr. Richards. He had a master's degree in English and taught American literature. But he was more at home as a philosopher than a dispenser of the fine points, of lit. A classic exchange with one of his students illustrated his philosophical bent. I recall that the literature story under class discussion that day had a love theme involving a spurned lover. Mr. Richards was reflecting on how someone else always wants what you've got. He informed us that if you break up with your girlfriend, someone else will want her. One of the young men in the class, who appeared to be on a tormented quest for the meaning of life and noting how all things seemed to revolve around love, blurted out, Mr. Richards, what is love? Without hesitation, he proclaimed, Love is when two forces intermingle and coincide with each other harmoniously. That is love. That was a big takeaway from my college education. Another, which also had to do with love, was a revelation that shocked me. I met a number of Auburn co-ed students who were not shy in proclaiming their intention of marriage. The degree they were interested in was something I'd never heard of before, but which was talked about widely and was called the MRS degree. I remember that one excitedly said in her junior year she was so looking forward to her marriage. So I asked the logical question, who's the lucky guy? 
Her answer left me without response. I don't know yet, but I'm sure that I'll find somebody before the end of my senior year. That was a bold statement and reflected a not too uncommon mindset. As one of my friends told me in hushed tones one day, you know, if they don't find a husband at college, where will they? Their odds of success will be severely reduced. I never thought of that. I will admit that this declaration of MRS degree hunting did cause me to look at eligible females with just a little more caution. Could we be friends and not get on the marriage track together? Could we date as friends and call it off if we discovered we were on different pages relationship-wise? Apart from the previously mentioned relationship with Mary Harmon Mikowski that didn't survive the best intentions of long-distance love, there were two girls at Auburn that slotted into the category of girlfriend during my time there. Never mind that I saw a t-shirt one day on campus which read, Define Girlfriend. Just the mention of that t-shirt opened the door to discussion about boundaries, dating, and latitude for keeping other company. I thought it was funny. Some didn't. I mentioned the t-shirt at a party once, and Shirley Hofsinger said huffily, We all know what a girlfriend is. I wondered what her backstory was. It seemed fairly common that a girlfriend, for the most part, was someone with whom you'd taken up steady or exclusive company. Going steady or going together seemed to be high school terminology. In college, as we moved towards adulthood, the terminology of boyfriend and girlfriend relationship description was supplemented with, they are together, or they are an item. Several of my friends made the leap from these various descriptions of girlfriend to fiancé, and we all knew what came after that. Diane, from Brundage, Alabama, first caught my eye with her auburn-colored hair. Smart, friendly, and chatty. I love spending time with her. I went home with her one weekend to meet the parents, an action which seemed to move our relationship to at least signaling a possible different level of interest than just spending time together. Her parents were fun and engaging, and her daddy was outgoing. But behind that smile, he was protective. As he talked to me about his precious daughter, about whom he let it be known that she was his pride and joy, he would laugh and say that I'd better take good care of her. And then he slipped in the classic line, I've been to prison, and I don't mind going back, if you know what I mean. I would weakly smile and mumble, yes, sir. I respected him. He didn't scare me off, nor did I bother to mention how much time she and I had spent inside my 1968 Ford Galaxy 500 in the far corner of the parking lot, using it as a place to be alone and talk and kiss. It probably wasn't worth bringing up. But after eight months of regular dating, Diane got a better offer. A starting inside linebacker spied her in French class one day, made an introductory move, and the next thing I knew, she'd gone home with him to Homewood or Hoover or Mountain Brook or some other fancy Birmingham suburb to meet the parents. Yes, they got married her senior year. The other Auburn co-ed that I fell for was Rachel from Alex City. She was similar to Diane in some ways, but with one big difference. She was a sorority sister, 
having pledged to Kappa Delta. Unlike the frat boys at Auburn, the sorority sisters didn't have their own separate residences. Word around campus was that a wealthy donor had given an enormous financial gift to the university to ensure that they wouldn't. The donor felt that sorority houses would be easily turned into residences of ill repute, and the vulnerable young ladies would not be able to survive the testosterone invasion of the young stallions neighing and racing across the loveliest village. So the semi-defenseless young lass would group with others of her kind in the same sorority and live on the same dormitory floor or perhaps find their own apartment. Thank goodness. At least there she'd be safe from male intrusion. Rachel lived in a dorm and ate in the cafeteria. I often ate with her as it was part of my meal plan. We found out that our parents were not happy if we ate out and skipped the paid-for meals, which were included with our fees. They were sacrificing to send us to this fine establishment of higher education. They were squeezing every dollar. Taking advantage of all of our advantages was one way to show our gratefulness. We occasionally went to the Auburn Town Institution, the Santa Freeze, or the Flush, as in Santa Flush, as it was known, for ice cream. It was across the street from the First Baptist Church. We could go there on Sunday nights to college-age Bible study and then slip over to the Flush for an afterglow event. Actually, it was the epitome of the cheap date. We liked being together, we both liked ice cream, and the price was right. And one or both of us would usually run into someone we knew. A miniature party developed on the spot. It was a good diversion from the school environment or the class assignments which always seemed to be hanging over our heads back on campus. My lack of disposable income became a determining factor in the demise of our relationship. Rachel's Kappa Delta social life eventually got the best of me. We liked each other a lot and even talked about marriage a time or two. But I couldn't keep up with her fast-paced world filled with this particular fundraiser and that big social fling, and it seemed like they had multiple such events with mandatory attendance for every season and for a whole bunch of occasions I couldn't predict. I was more than happy to be her date but I didn't have the right clothes or the right background for these events in her social circle. I felt increasingly uncomfortable. I just didn't know how to act, nor did I connect with the troop of boyfriends who I saw more and more at such events. Unlike with Diane, who dumped me, I was the one who made the move to tell Rachel that I was backing off, as painful as that was. She cried. I faced the reality that I wasn't interested in being exclusive any longer. I found out that she soon discovered Mr. Wright, who was from out of state, and they married one year after graduation. She quickly had twins, her husband passed the bar exam, and life was no doubt good. Glad she got over me. War Eagle. 